This is another episode of Off the Record Podcast, and I'm here with Sam Jacobs, the founder of Revenue Collective, a global community for customer-facing executives with over 2,000 members globally. Sam helped businesses scale revenue from zero to just shy of 300 million, has been instrumental in raising more than 1 billion in institutional capital across a number of companies. He also hosts Sales Hacker Podcast. Sam, thank you for coming on Off the Record Show. Looking forward to this. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Sergey. I want to move into a personal side at first, and I got some inspiration from your Twitter. You meditate four times a day? Is that true? No. So that particular post was I was being sarcastic, and the context was that I find that people that stop drinking alcohol are very... Um, they're just very, uh, they let everybody know, you know, about it, and they're, they're very luxury. So they, they sit there and they kind of like tell you how their life changed when they stopped drinking. And so it's sort of annoying. And so I was making a joke in that post. But it, it, you're not the only, the reason I'm so prepared with my answer is because, <laughs> is because I, I, I made a joke and nobody seems to understand that it was a joke. Because in that same thing, I said, I also like read five books a day or something like that. You said and two. The whole, and I thought it was yeah. all bad. <laughs> It's, it's all because there's just this group of like self-help evangelists on Twitter that I find that, you know, talk about how they read a hundred books a week and they meditate and they don't drink any alcohol and they do fasting and keto and never eat a cheeseburger. And so I was, uh, I was mocking those people at the same time that I think the first, the very first thing I wrote in that post was true, which is that I sleep better, I think when I don't drink. So I never understood how this fake positive thing People like, oh, it's, it's your life changed. That's like, it doesn't work this way. <laughs> At least it doesn't work for me. Everything in moderation, you, including moderation. You said something else, something else which ca caught my attention. My best, most productive, most lucrative business relationships have never, have come with the least amount of haggling. I did say that. That was sincere. What was, uh, just, what did you kind of... I find that, uh, like I said, let me give you an example. The Sales Hacker podcast, we just celebrated a million downloads. There was no contract in place for most of the past three years that we've been doing it. Max Altschuler called me and said, do you want to do the podcast? I said, sure. Uh, when I first started doing it, I said, can we split the ad revenues if there ever are ad revenues? He said, sure. And we split the ad revenues. And there was no chiseling. There was no nickel and diming. You know, when I wanted to do some things, he said, hey, this is a sales hacker thing. Don't do it that way. And I said, sure. So that's an example. Um, I just that's just been my experience that the people that understand value creation don't. I, I don't think that value is created uh, at at uh, the tenth decimal point. You know, I think value is created in the uh, the tens and the hundreds. Meaning, like the big things, the big drivers are the most important things, and the smallest details that sometimes inhibit people from making a decision quickly are rarely that important. So. I think that people that understand that and are not chiseling about every term, you know, sometimes you're signing an NDA when like if you read it closely, maybe it wasn't mutual. Like it doesn't matter, you know, most of, most of the time, most of the time it doesn't matter. And, and my experience is that the people that just say, sounds good, we'll figure it out later, let's shake on it. Those have been my best relationships. I've made lots of money from those people and they've made lots of money from me. Yeah. What makes Sales Hacker Podcast uh, grew so fast? What was... What was it about? So many other shows. I think it was just that they had a built-in audience. You know, they already had a hundred thousand people on their email list, and so when they and they had a website and they had you know demand gen people and social media people already working at the company. So when they had a new asset to talk about, which was the podcast, it was just. I don't think it was like my brilliance as a host or anything like that. I think it was mm -hmm. the fact that there was a built-in audience, and then I think it was consistency. We've been. Um, you know, haven't missed a Tuesday in three years and uh, you just keep doing it. And, you know, one day you look up and you've got a million people that have downloaded it, which is pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Yes, I can't can't uh, deny that. I want to talk to you about founders. Founders mistake early adopters to the market fit. Why does that why does this happen so often? Well, um, Meaning, uh, your, your point is that founders think they have product market fit based on early adopters, not based on the mass adoption of the broader, you know, ecosystem in which yes. they operate. Yes, and we spoke with you a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that happens because um, 
well, there's a tremendous amount of pressure. <laughs> That's why. Uh, fundamentally, you know, we're in a world where um, many, many companies take a path of raising uh, venture capital that's seeking 10 and 20x returns on their invested capital. The founders themselves uh, believe often that they are, you know, very special human beings that deserve greatness, and um, and oftentimes they're right. So I don't I, I don't say that to say that they're wrong. And I also feel like they feel deeply competitive. I mean, everybody does in the current capital markets. With they feel competitive with all of these other companies. The point of it is that they want to be the companies that are raising hundred million dollars and growing at three, four, five x a year. And so they um, they are looking for it. And oftentimes they spend a lot of time building the product in the first place, which means that they they've got a lot of their emotional kind of uh, uh, capital invested in, in this thing, and they want to start selling it. They want to start feeling like they're at the part of the curve where they don't have to keep building it so aggressively they can start monetizing it and demonstrating its value. At any rate, um, what happens is they underinvest in demand generation, which is a way of fancy way of saying they underinvest in how to get a meeting, and they overinvest in uh, turning meetings into money which is another way of saying they hire salespeople before they invest and have developed excellence around marketing and often before they truly understand whether there's broad excellence in their product. Marketing should be first, coming first before sales. In my opinion. Uh, and I, um, you know, my order of operations is uh, the first thing that needs to be great is the product. And, you know, you need to be a customer-centric organization, and we can talk about you know what that means and we what should, it doesn't mean. But um, but they should be your heroes. If you have disdain or contempt for your customers, it's likely a negative indicator on your ability to scale because you're not going to listen closely enough because you don't respect them. But so the first thing is uh, a love of your customers that finds its way into your product and product development. Uh, that translates to low churn high adoption and your customers telling their friends who also work in their industry and as a consequence generating word of mouth. And that translates into the tools that you need to build a great marketing organization which takes messages either from customers or that you've developed and puts them in front of people to capture their attention and hopefully get them to take some kind of action. Hopefully that's a meeting, right, to learn more. Uh, if yeah. it's a direct sales effort, if it's a completely you know product-led growth strategy, it's like do the free trial or do the demo or sign up or create an account, and then um, and then from there the sales team can turn meetings into money. But uh, a lot of people think that uh, the sales team creates meetings. Now, I'm not saying that salespeople shouldn't prospect, uh, but I'm just th I'm just saying that the best way to get a meeting is to have a product people love with an organization, which is the marketing department that is is focused on expanding how many people hear about that product in a unique and interesting way such that people Build want fans. to take meetings. Exactly. Because you don't, like, you can't, you can't ever have enough resources to hire a thousand salespeople. You need, like, events, in person something. People are evangelists. Everybody likes to toss the board, right? And then it just takes over versus, That's like, right. outbound is not happens. possible. The other thing that happens if you don't do it in that order is that you know, you can get the business to a certain miniature scale in today's capital markets, like that miniature scale, meaning like two, three, four million in ARR, uh, it, annual recurring revenue. You know, that that's that's big for many people. I don't consider it to be super big, but the point is that uh, at you know ninety percent churn uh, on a two million dollar business, yes, you lost you know two hundred thousand, and you you're at one point eight, and you need to find two hundred thousand dollars to get back to your starting point of two million. But at um, $10 million, I mean, it's just simple math, you need a million dollars, and it's a lot harder to find a million dollars in new revenue than it is to find 200000 and at $20 million, you need, obviously, $2 million, and it start, the numbers start to become, because your, your deal size typically isn't going to scale with your ARR necessarily, you know, you're, you're either a mid-market or an enterprise business, so if you've got a $20,000 average sale, and you need to find 10 of those to fill the gap at a $2 million business, but you need to find 100 of them and then 200 of them, and that's just hard to do. Um, so that's why churn, you know, at that stage of around between, you know, seven, eight, nine, up through uh, 20, like if you've got bad churn dynamics, you'll stop growing particular, uh, potentially. And that's also why I think the biggest, mm -hmm. the biggest uh, like indicator of a super successful company is not how quickly they get to 
eight million or two million, but it's really how quickly do they go from around eight or ten to twenty? And the companies that do that very quickly are grade A companies, and the companies that go from ten to sixteen to nineteen, you know, those are the companies that often struggle. But does it matter what churn rate they're at, or it's when they're jumping to X? Yeah, well, of course, I'm saying the ones that are capable of jumping to X are because they have very low churn, inevitably. Or they have even better than low churn, they have negative churn. They have expansion paths through their product that are easily monetized. I want to go to back to early adopters uh, versus product market fit. How do you, what indications do you get as a founder that you are either seeing one or the other? Is this the revenue, number of customers? What do you, how do you determine that, oh, this is actually not the market fit. I'm in the, at, at the early adoption stage. I mean, I, if, I, if it were me, people have problems with you know, some of these metrics that I'm about to throw out, but I'll tell you that we run Revenue Collective on NPS, Net Promoter Score. Now, Net Promoter Score is really, for me, a proxy. It's a way of saying, ask one question that's generally correlated to customer happiness the same way over time, and don't change the question. It doesn't mean that I particularly give a shit whether it's like, how likely are you mm -hmm. to refer this product to a friend versus how much do you enjoy this product? Like, I don't care about the it's, phrasing. It's consistency, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that's the number one way plus product usage. Those are the leading indicators. The lagging indicators are, of course, churn, cohort-based analysis on the churn. And those are the things that tell you, you know, if you have very, very high customer satisfaction and very low churn, then maybe there's an opportunity to, again, layer on additional investments in sales and marketing. But I also stage them. You know, I don't think it's about going from four people, four salespeople to 200 salespeople. You know, there, there are stages mm -hmm. of hiring that um, you need to demonstrate you're capable of meeting the demand of an additional five salespeople. Every salesperson you meet has to have meetings. So what is the process and mechanism through which you are going to generate those meetings. So the first thing is like net promoter score customer satisfaction. The second thing is what is the ease and frequency and volume of the meetings that you're able to generate. And if you're able to do that significantly and at scale, then you can hire lots of salespeople. Let's say a company has high churn. What do they need to look at at first? What are some of the air they, they create a list of areas they need to assess, maybe just on, the, on a very high level? On a high level, if they have high churn, then... Uh, they need to assess the business because what they need to assess is the product. There's two things about, um, you know, products, quote unquote, or whatever, however we want to think, like the thing that people buy. They are buying um, a solution to a problem. They're buying the, f they, they are, I guess, buying two things. One, the, the agreement that they have a problem, and two, that your way of solving the problem is the best, most elegant way. So if you have very high, and, and so, the problem is fr is framed by you typically, meaning the software company or you know the vendor, right? So right. they have to be thinking as it relates to the second part, which is they have to believe that your way of solving the problem is the best way to solve it. They have to be in agreement that the way you've defined the problem is correct. So if you have high churn, something in that you either they either don't agree that the way that you typically, if they make the purchase, then they agree that there's a problem. Then the issue is, do they agree that the way you've designed the product is the best way to solve that problem? Does it do what they expect it to do? But again, their expectations, you have helped create those expectations, hopefully. It's not like most of the time, they, you know, if it's a new category, they don't, they don't have a point of view on how it's supposed to work. But they have a point of view on right. how you've designed it to work. And then you have to figure out, do, you, you know, do, do, do they agree that the way that you've designed it is the way that it should be. And then relatedly, deeply relatedly, obviously, are they the right people in the first place? You know, have you, are they the people that you should be thinking about that have this problem that would benefit the most from the way that you've designed the solution? So that's all a mouthful, but the point of it is like, that's the, those things are, that's the company. <laughs> like That's the whole yes. thing. That is the whole thing. So like if you have high churn and you're in a subscription business, then I mean, sometimes, again, like you hear people talk about, um, and it's like hire more member success or customer success. That's true. Oh, pretty common, pretty common scenario. I've seen a lot of companies, uh, mid-sized SaaS companies here in Canada do that. They get, get it from five people, CS people to 15, eight, then they get the CS director or VP of CS, whatever they call them. And I don't think that's necessarily the wrong thing. I just think that like, that's the secondary 
solution, you know, the primary, the foundational solution is just confirming that, like, now, again, maybe it's like, well, we need member success or customer, we need them to explain to the customer, we need them to explain those things, like, and actually, it's not quite intuitive, but with some explanation and some handholding, it can become more intuitive, we just need to train the customer, because it's an entirely new workflow. I I can get behind that, I get that, but, fun, but you know, to, to your point, Sergey, high churn is related to um, something is off, in problem definition and persona definition, probably, or you know, or you've defined the problem the right way, but you just suck at delivering the the solution. Why don't we have enough, or not enough, customer centric organizations right now? If if we look, say maybe look at SaaS just to make it a little bit not as crazy broad. Well, I think we. I th I don't know how many. I don't know that we don't have that many. I just know that. Um, Customer centricity, quote unquote, is a uh, is a deeply. You need to have humility. Uh, I think that that runs counter to the people that want to start and lead companies. To be completely honest, I think that um, there's there's a couple different things, but one of them is that um, you know the people that gravitate towards like product driven founders, you know, product led founders or technical founders. Um, you know, the reason that people saw, I mean, this is a broad generalization, and I think actually today it's less true than it was 10 years ago because of how many young people I know whose friends are online and ha who have built meaningful human relationships with online friends. But the kind of people that gravitate towards writing code um, alone in a room for long periods of time are probably not the most empathetic people. They're probably not the people that are most interested in other human beings. And so you come up with, because um, I just I worked at a company, a B two B software company, and you know the founder was like, the heroes are the engineers in our company. Our customers don't even understand it. They don't deserve to speak to our CTO. He is one of the world's great, you know, database engineers, and like they don't deserve to be in the same room. They should polish his shoes. And um, I'm not saying that that person, that particular human being, can't build a valuable company. He's just making it very hard on himself. Because um, the best way to build a B2B software company, you know, I think too many people have just watched or heard about Steve Jobs, you know, and heard about like stories of Gorilla Glass or like the design. I was going to say, I was gonna, it kind of reminds me a little <laughs> bit of Steve. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except like that's different. You know, the, the, the founder saying like, you know, these people don't know what they want. I will give them what they want. That's true in B2C. But in B two B, that's not true. <laughs> like in B two B, but isn't it? But isn't it, Steve? Steve, I think I think there's there's people that understand. I think there's this big misunderstanding about Steve Jobs. He was super hard on his employees, but he really cared about the customers. Like he 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 was he was he really really cared about the customers. In 2010, the year before he died, Antenagate of iPhone 4, he came out. He said, "We really want to be perfect." And I was surprised because it was June 2010. This was he got pulled off his vacation. He was already really sick by then. He came back, did a presentation. He talked about we want to be perfect, and I saw that. And then at the time, I'm like, "That's a kind of a." great but it's never going to happen people are going to be pissed at anything do you, do you there's no perfect product um but then there's the other side of him dealing with other internal people which is a whole separate thing but i'm like i think there's a bit of a like i think he was very empathetic for towards the the customers i mean some things he said hey you're holding it wrong maybe not the best way to do it but it's, this is his personality I, I i agree with you and i'm also not the world's leading steve jobs historian but my point is that the, what people remember about Steve Jobs, like the soundbite, is that right. they, I know better than them and that I will show them and they will figure out once I give it to them that I was right and they were wrong. And my point is that that's probably true in the land of consumers, you know, like TikTok, Instagram, these, these behavioral right. modes, they were brand new formats, brand new mediums, brand new channels through which we could all engage and interact with each other. And there's no way that we would have a point of view on like what the best way to do it was. You know, you could say is a photo sharing app worth a billion dollars? I don't know. But now it's very clearly worth way more than a billion dollars. So so mm. but people apply those lessons to B2B, my point, and they say, I'm gonna build you know, I'm gonna build what I want. They don't know. They they're wrong about that and this is how it's gonna work. And my experience actually in B2B software is that generally speaking uh, your customers will tell you what they want, 
and your job is to now there's still judgment that's involved in curation because you know you have to separate signal from noise is this the mean or is this an outlier are we within one standard deviation of like the general consensus or is this person just a huge pain in the ass but nevertheless broadly speaking they'll tell you what to build you just have to be still and listen and that is an activity that you know highly ego driven people have trouble doing and so i think that they're not I, I mean, again, like I think, I think fundamentally it relates to empathy and a sense of superiority. Like if you, if you just want to be a founder, you just want to be a CEO, and you're like, you know what, uh, I have this thing that that should work for uh, waste paper, like waste management companies. And you're like, but they're idiots and they don't know how to do it. Like, I just, if you don't have respect, if you don't have affinity for the people you're selling to, that's, I think you're not, you're un, you're just less likely to build something valuable. Uh, we spoke with one of the uh, young founders on this show. He said it's easier; it's a lot easier to sell a product if customers are actively researching the problem already. I but it doesn't that. mean That's that probably... if if they're not researching, you still probably can do it. It's just harder. That's true, and that, I mean that's in the, into the point of like whoever that was saying it, actively searching. My thing is um, not to make this like too weird or spiritual, but like my thing is that product market fit is like a proxy for like the energy of the universe and like how do you hear the vibrational hum of the big bang we well, have to sit very still you know and then you can hear it and so to the point of like hey if you listen and you see that everybody's searching on a term that's you listening you know you're sitting still you're not jump you're not talking over them you're like let me see what the world is telling me and then i can respond to it it's much easier if you sit still if you are constantly in motion constantly you can't listen because you're talking the whole time. It's just going to be much more difficult to be in tune with what the world wants because you're disrupting it. You brought up this great point when we spoke with you the last time. You said there's this challenge of keeping engineers happy while because the customers' problems are boring, like and it's not interesting for them to keep them engaged. And then they're they're like there's not a lot of them. How, how do you what do you do as a founder to to, to overcome that? Uh, an engineering engagement problem, if we want to call it that. It's a very difficult thing to do. I think um, I don't have an easy answer. Uh, you know, right now, I'll tell you, like, I'm building a business that is uh, growing very quickly, that has a profile of a venture business, and we have an interim CTO, and that's it. Uh, and because we're using third-party tools. So one way that you get around that is by under is by redefining what technology means that's kind of one sort of very high level answer for for most people's technology is the software that you write uh, for my business the technology are the values that we instill in our customers uh, or that we evoke in our customers and I mean that not to be I'm not being glib I'm actually being quite sincere because we teach people how to behave and that replicates because they then teach other people kind of like this pay it forward concept which is a form of technology it's a form of idea sharing i think um you know part so of it is the, the right people who, who who resonate with that would obviously help yeah, absolutely and i think part of it is the sales pitch of the founder to re to reimagine mundane problems as more interesting or uh, exciting than maybe they are and then uh, you know the other part of it is sometimes you build stuff you don't need to keep them happy and entertained <laughs> like google 25 percent exactly Free time or whatever whatever it is right and and it, yeah i mean i think that's that's true probably and so like what that helps people do is but the other part of it is that engineers just i i think that people in general let's put engineers aside they want to be challenged with interesting problems and surrounded by people they they are inspired by and that they respect so those things obviously go hand in hand but if you can get the kernel you know, like everybody wants to be around Larry and Sergey, and then all of a sudden the next person that joins them is a genius, and then the next person wants to be around that person, it can build on itself. I um, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Trent Griffin, some, somebody also on Twitter was saying that it's not that, um, that like early, uh, you know, these, these companies like Google, these, these, you know, these, these iconic companies that they immediately hired all of the best talent or that they were such geniuses right from the outset. It is that early luck uh, created a center of gravity that attracted 
more of the smartest people. And then it became a self-replicating machine. And like you needed that initial spark, and that initial spark is the thing that attracted brilliance. And then, then the brilliance began to beget itself. So you have, let's say you have Apple, then you have Johnny Ive working there, iconic designer. You're like, oh, I really want to work with Johnny Ive, and then I want to work with the team, and then everybody, like the best people, slowly get in. Exactly, and then you're like, I, you know, I don't know who Johnny Ive's uh, second in command is, but you know, or you know, it's like, first you want Steve Jobs, then it's Johnny Ive and Tim Cook, and then it's you know, and then it's the next layer, and then pretty soon all of the best people. I mean, there was one time I think, I don't know if they, um, uh, I forget the woman that used to run Burberry, but you know, even when oh, they yeah, were Angela, doing Angela Terrence. Exactly. Like even the even the the retail people were like some of the best people that anybody's ever heard yeah. of. You know. Um, so anyway, they, they, they also had they also had a history of getting rid of the the ones that were not that good. <laughs> in a couple of months. <laughs> well, that's probably also a useful framework. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 interesting to 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 watch how deep the company culture goes. Like Steve Jobs is not there, but the culture is still the same. They're like they're twenty four seven. They're like chatting all the time uh, across the team, and people who don't like it. They go on Quora, they go on a bunch of other channels online or Medium, and they share these stories. And you read it, and you're like, that is the culture. That's what the company is about. I think, um, to your point, you know, one of the, one of the most amazing cultures is, uh, and also, the beauty of, like, true culture uh, should be, I think, somewhat, it should turn off some people. So, you know, there's this big New York Times takedown of Amazon, and, you know, how they work you to the bone and it's this grueling, horrible place. And there was a lot of people that read that. They're like, that sounds like a perfect place for me. <laughs> and there's a oh, lot really? of people that, oh, yeah, a lot of people gravitate toward it. a lot of people because a lot of people are not um, a lot of people are also not completely, you know, brainwashed by like they understand and how to parse articles and what they read and they can understand that between the lines there's a different story and they gravitated mm -hmm. towards that story if you think about the i think the culture of amazon is perhaps the most amazing because you know everybody talks about like willingness to accept failure i just feel like um amazon just the fact that they created aws and elect like there's no they have so many different lines of business that really aren't related to e-commerce initially at least but it they but Jeff Bezos always talks about how they they have a it is really an idea creation engine like that's what it is Amazon is not any one thing except for a formula and a process for creating testing and then scaling new ideas i just think that again like looking at AWS probably like the most important it's hard to say that it's not the most important mm -hmm. company in the history of the internet uh, and I've it's heard just a, a division. lot of people saying I've heard a lot of people calling Bezos as one of the most genius people running probably one of the most boring companies in early exactly. 2000s, like the most boring company. Uh, and it's like, it's, it's so true though. Generating yeah, it's the amazing. ideas across the board. I mean, I get, like, like I said, you know, Alexa works. It's crazy. It works. Like I, I just, we're so used to AI just sucking shit. And it's like, you know, she's in the room with me right now, so I don't want to say it. But, like, you know, she knows what the time is. She knows what the weather is. She'll play my favorite band. The, we live in the future. We, we, I think we take it for granted a little bit. We have a lot to thank for Amazon. Oh, 100%. Like, what they're doing even with, with their Prime Video, that's impressive. That, like, how much they're, they're buying and, like, how much they're investing in Amazon Originals. Like, even on that front, that little piece, that's a lot. And he's just because he's uh, he's just brilliant when it comes to risk reward analysis and capital allocation. Like he just understands. I think more people should understand more about like because I, I from what I understand they amortize the cost of content creation against the value of the prime membership, and they're like you know we pay for this by people buying dog food and toilet paper. That's how we pay for it. Like just that's I've been at companies deep. that did not. It is deep actually because I've been at companies. I was at. I'll give you a specific example. So Livestream, I worked at Livestream. Livestream, you know, uh, sold to Vimeo. Vimeo went public yesterday. So this is a happy ending story. And my friend Mark Kornfeld, who's the chief product officer, is an absolute genius. But Livestream started as a um, 
as a software platform so that you live stream things, right? And then um, they built this high-end studio equipment so that you, because they found that you know producers and content creators needed good stuff to be able to put on good shows. And they charged for it, and they charged for it as if they were competing with other manufacturers. Then what they did was when I got there, and this guy Max Hout who started it, he, you know, he is a genius builder. You know, he can spin up a five million dollar. They were livestream was a collection of like five different five million dollar businesses, and then one big twenty million dollar business, which was the software platform. But here's my point: the point, a long-winded point, admittedly. Um, they built this camera called Mevo uh, because the whole concept was like you needed. People weren't live streaming because it was too much of a pain in the ass. So if we built like a small little camera you could hold in your hand, um, more people would live stream and that would unlock the true value, which is the recurring revenue around the software subscription. And so my point is uh, this is un-Jeff Bezos-like in the sense that they were adamant that they wanted to charge. They're like, a GoPro is 500 bucks. We need to charge 500 bucks. We need to make margin on this camera. And I said, you should be trying to give away the camera. Your goal should be to give the camera away for free. Your goal, I'm not saying you have the balance sheet to do it, but our goal should be to charge as little as possible for it because it is a lead generation mechanism for the software platform. And we should be evaluating in the context of unit economics, customer acquisition cost, and lifetime value, not as I need to make money on the separate line item, even though the purpose of the line item is not to become a camera company, it is to drive subscriptions for the live streaming platform. So anyway. No, that's a good, that's a good example. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of what reminds me Google Pixel. Google Pixel, like Google, is really good at services but for some reason somebody at google said oh we absolutely need to make profit on google pixel phones and they need to be cost the same as iphone but they're not they're not great and they never took off and they lost a lot of money why would they do that can you, you like do it absorb it and just subsidize it never they never did and, and in, in contrast right chromebooks are really cheap and that's exactly they should be cheap you know like the whole point is like we have a different business for us. That's the power. You know, that's the power of the other business. It's like I don't need to be – I don't need to make money as a, as a studio owner. I just need to sell more right. prime memberships. I have a better way of doing – of monetizing movie content, and it's not by charging 9 bucks a month just for the movies. It's by remember, including them. I remember when uh, Amazon Prime just appeared the first time. Everybody was so critical. It was like, oh, my God, this is just the worst thing ever. And then everybody gets silent for a year. And then they start slowly <laughs> rolling in and adding things. And everybody's like, oh, my God, Prime, of course. Yeah. Well, you know what? On a very, on a tiny, infinitesimally small scale, that's what I'm doing at Revenue Collective. Because we have these learning programs. We're a community for, you know, for sales and marketing, customer success executives, and we're going to evolve into something new that we'll announce on June 22nd. But the point is that we started building these learning programs, CRO school, chief revenue officer school, frontline manager school. And the original idea was that we would charge for it as a separate transactional line item, and I had it in the model. And then to the same point, I said, you know what? I'm just going to include it. Like, it'll just be free. I'll just put everything into the membership. You get you get 10% off when you sign up for outreach and you get free CRO school and you get a mentor and I'm just going to put so much stuff in it that it'll be my version. It'll be like a professional version of Amazon Prime for your career. Very cool. So you, uh, I want to talk about that. So you have your, um, I wanted to ask you first of all, how did you build a community? Because community is super key. You have 2,000 members. What did you do 5, to... 5,000 now that was my my, <laughs> my intro was outdated so what do you how did you do that like what did you what did you do on a regular basis to start building these uh, these people that are like-minded I um, the first thing and which is why it's difficult to replicate thank God is that I've been doing this for uh, about seven to eight years so that's thing number one which is that I started bringing to people together for uh, dinner uh, where we'd all pay Dutch, there was no you know money involved. Uh, once a quarter, back in like 2014, and then um, I created a Google group, so that because I always felt like a dinner is useless or a quarterly meetup is useless unless we have a way of connecting and communicating with each other between those events, and so we started, and that was frankly stolen from MSP Modern Sales Pros, which is just it, that's all it is is oh, a Google yeah. group, right? And so um, we did that, and. Uh, 
you know, I hate to say one thing led to another, but then we started charging dues January 1st, 2018. But fundamentally, like, what's the point? Because I can tell you the sequence of events. But the thing that enabled it to grow was people's belief was my – I have a strong point of view on how these things should be run. And I, I, you know, it's reflected. So it's, it's a, it's a garden. It's heavily curated, right? It's not a jungle. We weed the garden, we water the garden, we make sure that it is a good environment. And, uh, and then secondarily, or maybe even more beef, I don't know what order it comes in. People also believe me. They believe, they believe that we're sincere about wanting to help them. And um, and we teach people. That's why I said our the, our technology is our values because when you join, you get a welcome video, and it's like, hey, you give before you get. You don't spam people. You're responsive. Like, don't try and sell people stuff. You'll sell people stuff in the long run by being a helpful, nice mm-hmm. person. But we're not immediately going to try and sell them stuff every time you know we do a nice thing for them. So we we show them that video. They go into Revenue Collective and they meet some people, and everybody embodies it. They all are helpful and they respond and they are nice. And it's really surprising because it's not LinkedIn. It's a different world where people are have agreed that they would be helpful as long as you agree not to be annoying or spammy. And um, on LinkedIn, and everybody's trying itself. to on LinkedIn, everybody's trying to sell. Like it's, What's that? It's a, it's a, on LinkedIn, everybody's trying to sell. It's a free right. message today, but click on the link and we'll, we'll get you well linkedin's and, th- and that's why again like to the point is like my i have a point of view on a lot of things as you can tell on a lot of things yeah and one of the things is that um what i'm trying to re i'm trying to reimagine certain things about the internet like one of the key the foundational tenets of the internet right like to the point of the browser we're using um linkedin facebook so much of it is free the point of it being free, as we all know at this point, is that our data and our behavior is the product, and that product is sold to advertisers and salespeople and recruiters. Right. And so, to generate, uh, you know, the, to make that product as valuable as possible, they need our engagement and they need it, the audience to be as large as possible. And um, that's not my business model. So that's like, you know, people are like LinkedIn's super noisy and it's annoying and it's spammy. It's like, yeah, that's true. That's a feature, not a bug. That's how it's designed. That's what it's, it's doing what it's designed to do. My thing is not about audience engagement. My thing is like you pay me a monthly or annual fee. The, the promise that I'm delivering to you is I'm going to help. I'm going to work very hard to find what is great within you and help bring it to the surface so that you can have the best possible career that you want to have. You will decide on a monthly or annual basis whether I'm actually doing that or not to the point of churn and um, – NPS and all that. If you decide that I'm not doing it, you'll cancel. And if you decide that I am, then you'll stay. And it's very simple. And it also means that I have no incentive. I don't need you to like click. I don't need you to get 10,000 views on a post. That's I have no, I don't give a shit. What I want yeah. you to do is to be happy. I will use statistics and data and systems to tell me, are you an engaged, happy member? Are you doing the things that we think make you happier? Did you find a mentor? Did you take one of our classes? But my business model is different, and I think that that's mm-hmm. part of what we're trying to introduce to people is like, hey, I know you're used to getting things for free, but there's a cost to it, and you're experiencing the cost. And I understand that not everybody will want to pay, but for the people that do, you're entering a more curated place. It's a better place. It's a nicer well, place. Well, you're probably going to get the more, way better people. It's the same thing as people pay $100 for groups on Patreon. The people who pay $100 on a group, or, for example, cryptocurrency group, I'm in one of them, um, uh, pay $100 a month. People who join, uh, most of them are really good. They're like, they're not trying to sell you something on Telegram. They're like, they're very good. They understand the value of the content. They understand the market. They understand the graphs. And it's the same thing with pretty much any industry. Like people who join at a hundred dollars, like uh, the more the more expensive it is, and especially the subscription, then people are um, probably the ones that you want to do business with or deal with. I agree with you. What do you think is going to happen to the price of Bitcoin in the calendar year 2021, Sergey? So that is the million dollar question. I think what's going to happen is there's two scenarios. One scenario uh, is more likelihood, I think, is that it's going to go up to $60,000, $70,000 by September, October uh, this year until it's actually going to go to the bear market and it's going to crash 90%, 80%, whatever whatever the number it is. Oh, it's going to go all the uh, way back down to like 10000 Yeah, I'm pretty sure. We just don't know exactly when. I'm pretty sure it's going to happen. Uh, 
so, so, so that's that's a more likelihood. Uh, that's that's what's going to happen. We're still ha we haven't hit the peak of the bull run. The other side is that we have hit. It's already the peak and we passed it, and now it's going to go down by another 50, 60, 70 percent for the next couple of years, and it will take a lot of time to recover. Uh, will the Bitcoin? And, and I'm more speaking in terms of the market itself. Will Bitcoin recover 100%? I don't think there are uh, really any uh, fundamental reasons for the energy consumption that Elon Musk talked about. Um, but th right now, the question is, w are we still in the bull market or not? I think the higher chances we are, uh, but we'll have to see. Well, thank you for that thoughtful answer. I got what some do, value do you, from What this. do you think? What do you think? I... Um my perspective is extremely naive and simplistic and uh and as a consequence um i don't know you know but again like this is i've made money on simplicity and high level so generally speaking what i think is that uh you know i can't eat gold i can't eat silver there are massive multi-trillion dollar you know gold's a 10 trillion dollar market or whatever it is i don't i'm not quite clear why there is no intrinsic value to gold. I mean, maybe it's like if you boil it and or melt it and turn it into jewelry. I understand that. But so when I look at crypto, when I look at Bitcoin specifically, I say there's going to be a store, a standard, uh, you know, a commodity standard. I would I, it seems to be Bitcoin as a consequence. Uh, I, I just fundamentally believe that it represents some notion of the future. I want to be long the future. All of the people that are on TikTok and all of the all of the young people these days don't give a shit about gold, and they're going to give a shit about things that represent a more modern world. And I also think that if you look at how you don't have a vaccine yet, you know, like if you look at the functioning of national governments and the breakdown and the fact that they are increasingly unable to respond in real time to global catastrophe or tra or you know crises, mm -hmm. then what, how do you hedge against that? What's a bet against? national order i would think that it would be bitcoin so you know i don't know what it does in the near term i do think that in the like medium to long term it's going to be a more meaningful percentage of the global commodity market you know as like something that's traded but that's what i think i think people say like well it doesn't do anything and you know i don't understand it it's like well what do you understand about any of the way that financial markets like function it's like you're an expert on what <laughs> people always will have opinion about the headlines always you yeah, read a headline. Exactly. Oh my God, this is terrible. Like they Bitcoin's know nothing. nothing. It doesn't even exist. It's like, does gold exist? I don't under like most commodities markets are not oil. We're not using them in the global production of goods. You know, there's just like they trade because people all agree to trade them. <laughs> I, I, this there's this good quote that uh, I keep reminding myself sometimes. I think it was Dostoevsky who said that to this Russian guy. Uh, there are uh, <laughs> I know a lot who of people. Dostoevsky is <laughs> right. Thank you for uh, that though. <laughs> There, there are a lot of people who will die for the truth and very few who will spend five years digging into what the truth is. Yeah, well, I agree for that. Well, I mean, I've been uh, we're completely off whatever the topic is supposed to be, but the uh, I am continually amazed, uh, absolutely amazed at uh, I, I say that our our species is, you know, we're teenagers, you know, we're young, we're not. I don't believe we've reached true civilization yet. And you can tell because there's no consensus on facts anymore. And, mm -hmm. you know, the people, I'm just amazed that like pe people that believe things that are just clearly not, it just does. And it's just clear that someone will believe whatever they are told to believe by whomever is the tribe leader in their tribe. And it's wild, you know, because there's like um, in the U.S. we've got anti-vaxxers. I don't understand how you. It just why is that the thing? Why why were you against wearing a mask? But it's like very important to some people, arbitrarily so it seems. It's unbelievably. I think I think it's super underestimated globally by how much people are influenced by by all these groups, by all these Facebook groups, by all these little organizations, more like a smaller organizations, uh, and they believe into things that are completely dumb. Like yeah. uh, they're like completely not real, and it's sad also because uh, people are very controlled in that sense because they fall for things that are just oh my god how is it possible i know that's my point and so when you zoom out and you're like how is it possible that all of these people believe things that are verifiably untrue you're like we're not there yet 
I don't know what there is, you know, but like I, we're not there as a, as a species. There was also one point I wanted to make just to add on to the crypto, the Bitcoin, is that at some point there's a very, very high chance that the interest rates are going to rise and the stock market will experience 50, 60, 80, 90 percent correction. It might happen this year, it might happen next year, but there's a high chance that the interest rate is going to go up because of the inflation. And it, if that happens, it will drag down Bitcoin. Uh, if it will, it will drag down the crypto market 100% because they're so connected together. And and there's uh, crypto is a smaller market driven by fear and and bubbles and and 100% speculation primarily. So when that happens, people are going to be in trouble. I agree. With, well, I agree with you that they're very directly correlated. That they're not inversely correlated, and that people are investing in crypto once they feel like they have enough money to lose, and that's because they felt like they made some money in the stock market. <clears throat> Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, but it's a, it's a bad time for a stock market, in my personal opinion. But uh, <laughs> we went a little far <laughs> off. You you spoke about it, and um, that was something that caught my attention. Self compassion, uh, loving yourself. Tell us about how did you kind of come through this process? Because I think uh, that was pretty profound. You spoke about it in an interview last year. Yeah, and I wrote about it on the uh, Revenue Collective blog, uh, and I'm still. You know, I might sound like I have all the answers, and I'm still. I just let me be clear that I don't, and that some days are better than others. But um, I mean, I guess the fundamental point is that I realized, and it was a realization. It was like it happened in a moment. It was I was on top of a hotel in Miami, the one hotel, which used to be the cool spot, and now it's just a little bit run down. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is that I realized that there were two things happening in my mind. Uh, one of them was uh, a story I was telling myself that uh, that I didn't un that that things were happening that I didn't understand, and that that maybe things were working that that I thought weren't working, maybe they were working. So, like, uh, just a story about my life mm -hmm. that was right. skeptical, on top of the true knowledge and and intuition and understanding of how how the world actually was, and. Um, the story I was – and so in that moment – and I, I mean I can explain in greater detail. But what I realized – what I realized is that um, that I was creating a lot of outcomes uh, in my life that I was responsible for far more than I was acting like. And that um, the cause of it oftentimes was uh, me uh, being dissatisfied or unhappy with my life and my results. And that that – wasn't motivation and that I guess the most important point is this that that unhappiness did not lead to greater things it was leading to worse things that it wasn't you know because sometimes people say you know necessity is the mother of invention that's true but 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 also that like this idea that being paranoid and anxious and disappointed in yourself and unhappy with your results would somehow uh, one day magically lead to better results and more so satisfaction with yourself and more contentment. And it turns out for me, I'll qualify everything with for me, for me, uh, contentment leads to contentment and happiness leads to happiness. And my coach says, you know, in the Bible, he says, uh, I don't even know if this is true, but he says, to he who hath much more shall be given. And that the universe rewards abundance, that people that act from a place of scarcity get less and people that act from a place of abundance get more, even though they already have it. And I don't know about the biblical rationale for that, but I can just tell you that that's been my experience is that love and contentment first with yourself for me has led to greater results. And I realized in sitting on this hotel uh, that uh, I, I had been doing it wrong. And that there were a lot of things I was doing that I thought that I knew weren't working, but I was doing them because maybe they were specifically, I'm talking about cognitive therapy. I'm talking about talk therapy. Mm -hmm. I had a therapist for a long right. time and I just found that he would, we would talk about what was wrong. That's all we would talk about what was wrong. And then he would try to figure out what was it in my childhood and my relationship with my parents that led to this wrong thing. And I would come out of it thinking pissed off at my parents, pissed off at my family, oftentimes pissed off at my wife and not any happier and I but always thinking maybe it's working maybe somewhere it's working and realizing that it wasn't working it wasn't working I knew that it wasn't working and that mm. 
for me, the best path forward wasn't inordinately focusing on the past. It was looking to the future. It was not trying to blame my parents or my sister or my brother or my wife. It was taking responsibility and saying it starts with me. And the best way I can change my results is by being kinder to myself and being and finding the love. And so I wrote this long thing. At any rate, today, fast forward two years later or a year and a half later, and you know, I journal pretty much every day. And in that journal, every time I wrote, in addition to like a mundane description of things that have occurred, I write, I love you, Sam. You know, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm trying to remind myself, you know, because it's hard to remember that I do love myself. I am proud of who I am. I'm a good person. And, um, and that's okay. And so many people feel like they're going to be viewed as egotistical. You know, the, the thing that I was talking about somebody recently is like other people are like, you know, they complain about something and then they're like, but what are my, my problems don't count. You know, like, who am I to complain? And it's like, I guess, but, like, you're also still a human being. You have a right to your feelings. It's the constant uh, degradation of yourself to other you people. Acknowledge. Acknowledge yeah. yourself. Acknowledge you where you are. Don't, don't just, like, put it in the back and, like, move on. Happy face. doesn't work. Exactly. Over time, accumulates, and then you're, you blows up. And try to, I 100%, and also love yourself find the good things tell yourself nice things don't just be like you're fat you're lazy say hey you went for a run it was hard to go for a run i appreciate that you stopped after two miles but you went for the run good job i'm proud of you yeah yeah that's that's a good point that is a good point you also spoke about something that uh i personally resonated with a lot is that not really caring too much about opinions about other people like not to be disrespectful in a way. It's not that. It's more, hey, this is what I think. These, these are what other folks think, and that's okay. Like, I'm, I'm, I don't really care too much about, I'm not really too influenced about that, by that. Yeah, it's, it's very, very hard. I live in a city. I, it's probably the hardest city in the world, maybe besides London. London's a bit more garish, actually, than New York. But um, it's the hardest city in the world because money runs this city. And you're constantly yeah. comparing yourself to other people and you're constantly aware of where they are in the status structure, the social hierarchy. And again, it's, it doesn't make you wealthier in my experience. Oh, 100%. Being, I don't being think extremely jealous, extremely concerned, extremely nervous, extremely worried. The thing that drives wealth creation and happiness creation and abundance creation is your own contentment and satisfaction with where you already are. That's what I've learned. Sam, on this note, thank you so much for being on the show, for sharing all these thoughts. I think we covered, we kind of moved a little bit of like sideways. It's more <laughs> Joe Rogan so than a, a, a traditional uh, founder interview. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I've, uh, it's been fun talking to you, Sergey. Thank you so much. This is another off the record episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed this one. This is more definitely Joe Rogan style. And uh, we'll be back with another cool person soon. All right.